0: Back in July of 2012, the BBC published an article entitled The Agony of Feeling No Pain. This article focused on the experience of an American man named Stephen Pete who was born with congenital analgesia, a condition that left him completely unable to feel pain. Now perhaps some of us here might think at first the inability to feel pain would be a wonderful gift rather than a disability. In the article, Stephen describes how this unusual condition negatively affected his life and how dangerous it's become for his long-term survival. According to the article, the first indication uh, that something was wrong came when Stephen was only four or five months old and began to bite into his tongue when he was teething. Very concerned about the behavior, his parents took him to the pediatrician where they confirmed that both he and his twin, twin brother, Chris, did not have the ability to feel any pain. Though the parents tried their best to protect their boys without totally stifling them, they both went through childhood riddled with injury because they couldn't tell when they'd hurt themselves. And as he grew into his adult years, Stephen learned to be very careful, to be very vigilant with his health and his body. But in spite of his best efforts to protect himself from unintended injury, he now has a leg that is damaged beyond repair and faces the possibility of amputation. On the other hand, his twin brother Chris lost all hope and took his own life. Though the experience of physical pain is never fun for any of us, the truth is that some pain is actually good and necessary for our health and our survival. So we're going to see from the Word of God today, the same thing is true when it comes to other forms of suffering we endure in this life. Unpleasant disruptive as suffering can sometimes be in our lives, suffering is often the tool that God uses to get our attention. The tool that He uses to refine our character, to prevent us from moving forward in a direction that would be for our harm, perhaps even for our destruction. As C.S. Lewis once put it, suffering is God's megaphone. He whispers in our pleasures, but He shouts in our pain." If you have your Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Job and we're moving now into the home stretch, the concluding portion of our study. This morning we're going to focus on Job's final defense in the words of a newcomer named Elihu that will push us into new and helpful territory in our investigation of the problem of evil and suffering. This idea that suffering is God's way of getting our attention, God's way of protecting us from spiritual harm. We're going to be dealing this morning with a number of chapters at one time. We're mostly going to be skimming the surface. And once again today, I'm going to be reading a representative portion of the text beginning in chapter 32, Job chapter 32. And I remind you, this is the inspired and inerrant word of God. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzzite, answered and said, "'I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak. Let many years teach wisdom. But it is the Spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who, are understa- who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion.' Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention. Behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share. I will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery towards any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my Maker would soon take me away. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am towards God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need, need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Surely you have spoken in my ears. You have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgressions. I am clean. There is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds out. Acu- occasions against me he counts me as his enemy he puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths behold in this you are not right i will answer you for god is greater than man why do you contend against him saying he will answer none of man's words for god speaks in one way and in two though man does not perceive it In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep fall upon men while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away it cannot be seen. His bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth, let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then a man prays to God and he accepts Him. He sees his faith, face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I have sinned and perverted what was right. It was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent and I will teach you wisdom. We come now into these final chapters of the book of Job. It is crucial for us to get a picture of Job's spiritual progression as he's been walking through these tremendous difficulties and interacting with the advice and accusations of his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. The introductory message a few weeks weeks ago, you'll recall Job entered into this trial with two stunning affirmations of faith. One of them was at the end of chapter 1 and the second one at the end of chapter 2. The concluding verses of chapter 1, we read some of the most familiar verses in the entire book. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground in worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then again in chapter 2, after Job's health has been taken from him, his wife taunts him by saying, do you still hold fast to your integrity, Job? Curse God and die. Remarkably, Job responds with another expression of complete confidence in God's sovereign plan. He says to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not also receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. In the opening phase of the trial, Job gets an A-plus for the way he responds, a truly amazing expression of faith and confidence in God that silences the accusation of the enemy and demonstrates truly righteous people worship God for who he truly is and not because of what he can do and what he can give. Job wins a remarkable victory in the first two chapters, but in chapter 3 we meet Job in a very troubled state of mind. He's now an outcast sitting in the city dump on a pile of ashes, scraping his wounds with a broken piece of pottery. And for seven days, Job sits there on the ashes in total misery and silence with three of his friends. And finally, he begins to cry out with a bitter lament, cursing the day of his birth, expressing his heartfelt desire that God would take his life and end it all. In chapter 3, Job is in the depths of despair. He's a man who's lost all hope. But even in his state of complete misery, Job still refuses to curse God for all the calamity that's fallen on him. He does not sin against God with his lips. What follows this lament, of course, is the heart of the book. 24 chapters of dialogue and debate between Job and his three friends who are essentially preaching a message of karma. Suggesting that Job's great suffering is punishment for God for some grievous sin that he's committed. And they insist that Job is simply getting what's coming to him. And as these men press their case against Job with no mercy or kindness, he begins to defend himself. He begins to insist that he's done nothing wrong. Dialogue grows very heated through the middle chapters, and as tempers flare and emotions run high, Job's confidence in God's justice and goodness begins to waver. Job begins in the middle chapters to sin against God with his mouth. For example, in chapter 9, verses 22 to 23, we read these bitter, angry words directed towards the Lord. Job says he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? Again, in chapter 16, verses 9 to 14, we read more unholy speech coming from the lips of Job. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach and runs upon me as a warrior. In these middle chapters of the book, Job crosses the line from grief and lament into thoughts about God, speech about God that is both sinful and disrespectful. And the more that his friends persist in accusing him of unrighteousness, the more adamant Job becomes in his resolve to defend himself and to insist on his own innocence although it's true job has done nothing at all to anger god or to bring this suffering upon himself these middle chapters remind us job is a sinner in need of god's grace he is not a perfect man he's a good man he's a righteous man a godly man a regenerate man but job is not a perfect man as martin luther liked to put it he's one at, the, at one and the same time justified and a sinner And in the heart of this difficult trial, we begin to see Job's pride bubbling to the surface as he defends his own integrity and in the process calls God's character into question, suggesting verbally that God is unjust and immoral. And as we know, Job's friends eventually run out of steam and Job concludes quite rightly in chapter 28, there is no wisdom in anything they've said. That's what we learned last week. We saw that Job's poem on wisdom in chapter 28 marks a turning point in the book as the discussion switches from the subject of divine justice to the subject of divine wisdom. Job's not finished speaking yet. In chapters 29 to 31, Job takes his final stand and makes his final defense, but not in a way that will bring God honor or demonstrate the type of wisdom he's seeking. By the time we arrive at chapter 31, Job has definitely crossed the line into blasphemous speech against God. Self-righteous pride is welling up in his heart and is spilling out of his mouth. But God in His mercy and grace is going to intervene in Job's situation. He's going to intervene before Job goes too far down this dangerous path. First by sending a young man named Elihu with a word of correction and then speaking directly to Job out of the whirlwind. Now that's a quick overview of Job's spiritual progression through the trial. In the time remaining today, I want to consider first of all the transgression of Job as we find it in chapters 29 to 31, and then look briefly at the tirade of this young man named Elihu who bursts onto the scene with stern and angry words for Job and his three friends. Let's dig into the text today, begin with Job's final stand in chapters 29 to 31. Job launches into his final defense in chapter 29 by indulging in some nostalgia, thinking back to what life was like before the bitter trial ever began. We didn't read that chapter this morning. If you read it in detail later this afternoon, you will discover Job spends a great deal of time reflecting on the honor and respect that he once commanded from members of his community. For example, in chapter 29, verse 7, we read these words. When I went out to the city gate, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voices of the nobles was hushed. Their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. Here in the Western world, I suspect that if we were in Job's shoes, most of us would be more distressed by the loss of our health and our material blessings than we would by the loss of honor. But Job is from an Eastern culture, a culture that values honor and respect in a way that we Westerners might not fully appreciate. This is one of the big differences, by the way, between Western culture and Eastern culture to the present day. Eastern cultures, like Job's, tend to be more concerned with matters of shame and honor than we are here in the West. And what becomes very clear here in chapters 29 and 30 is that Job is more grieved by the loss of his honor than he is about any material loss that he suffered. Job has gone from being the most prominent and well-respected man in town to being the object of mockery and disgrace, an intolerable situation for a man in Job's culture. And it got so bad that even the village rabble is now laughing at him, putting him to open disgrace and shame. Men, as Job says, who are younger than I and whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. Now i become their song. I'm a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Job has been shamed and disgraced by the riffraff, and as he reflects bitterly on his present situation and compares it to what life used to be like before the trial, his pride begins to stir within him as he seeks a way to restore his honor and to put away his shame. Second emphasis that we see in Job's concluding words is the way he defends himself against the unfair accusations of Eliphaz. You may remember back in chapter 22, Eliphaz falsely accused Job of all kinds of sins. This is what he said. For you, Job, have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink. You've withheld bread from the hungry. You've sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you. This is complete nonsense, of course, but these slanderous words from Eliphaz must have stung Job to the very core because now in chapter 29, he takes the opportunity to openly and specifically refute them. Have a look in your Bible what Job says in chapter 29, verse 12. He says, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help them. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Hard to miss Job's passion here. Job is now going to great lengths to defend his reputation. He wants to set the record straight to let Eliphaz and everyone else know that these accusations of sin are false. And the more that Job reflects on his past honor, the more that he talks about all of his generosity, the righteous deeds from the past, the more pride begins to stir and well up in his heart. Job now feels that he has the moral high ground. And so he turns from Eliphaz and begins to hurl his own set of accusations towards God. For example, verse 21 of chapter 30. Job says to God, you have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Job is now speaking to God in exactly the same way that his friends just spoke to him. And the insinuation in the final verses of chapter 30 is that Job believes he has outdone God when it comes to mercy and compassion. He's remembering all of the kindness, all of the mercy that he extended towards the oppressed and downtrodden. And now he wonders why God will not extend the same courtesy to him. Job must be more merciful and righteous than God. Self-righteous pride is taking root in Job's heart. By the time we get to chapter 31, Job is ready to throw down the gauntlet completely and to challenge God directly with a series of solemn oaths. Today, it's common in our culture for people to make oaths very flippantly and casually when we say, for example, I swear to God or I swear on my life. In effect, challenging God to strike us dead if we're not telling the truth, not to mention the fact that it is taking the name of the Lord in vain. And Job is doing a similar thing here in chapter 31, but there's nothing flippant about it in the context. He's dead serious. In chapter 31, Job uses a series of solemn oaths to defend his reputation, hoping perhaps that he can force God's hand to act. And one by one, Job names these various sins and declares himself to be innocent of the sin of lust and dishonesty, adultery, oppression, stinginess, idolatry, vindictiveness, hypocrisy, and exploitation. He names each sin once by one, one by one and challenges God to punish him and strike him down if he's lying. And what Job is really trying to do here is to back God into a corner. To force God to respond. Job is trying to outmaneuver God and he probably figures it's a win-win situation. You see, if God does strike him down and punish him in response to these oaths, Job will finally get his wish to go to the grave. All of his pain will be over. But if God does not take action by punishing him, Job thinks his innocence will be publicly vindicated. He might not get back everything he lost, but at least he can walk away from this trial with a shred of dignity. You see what's happening here to Job as the book unfolds? In the heat of the trial, pride and self-righteousness are getting the better of him. And Job has decided his reputation, his honor is more important than God's reputation and God's honor. And so by the time we get to the end of chapter 31, Job has won the debate with his friends. Job has left his friends speechless, but in the process of silencing them, in the process of vindicating himself, he has also sinned against God. Let me say here by way of application, the suffering and pain we experience in this life often has a side effect that is both painful and necessary for our spiritual growth. The suffering that you and I experience in this life often stirs up residual sin in our hearts that we may not even realize is still there. Suffering reveals flaws in our character. It reveals deficiencies in our walk with the Lord that we would never come to see in any other way. Dark sides of our personality, imperfections that lay dormant and hidden deep below the surface until they are disturbed by adversity and stirred up by suffering and pain. Job was a good and a godly man, there's no denying that, but like all of us who've come to know the Lord, Job had a residue of sinful pride in his heart that God wanted to deal with both for Job's good and for God's glory. And Now in the heat of the trial, the impurities of Job's heart come rising to the surface so that God can bring this man to an even greater state of spiritual refinement. It's actually the process of refinement that Job has already described for us in chapter 23 when he stated, but when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So Christian friend, the next time you face a difficult trial, do not be surprised if God reveals to you some areas of sin and spiritual ugliness that lie hidden deep in your heart, sin that you might not have even known was sitting there. Well, this truth about God's refining purpose in suffering leads us to the sudden appearance and speech of a new character named Elihu, which begins in chapter 32 and continues until chapter 37. Elihu is a fascinating character. He's a character who tends to divide Bible commentators and scholars into two groups. On the one hand are those who dismiss Elihu as a rude and self-important young man who speaks endlessly without really saying anything. Those who take this position on Elihu argue that Elihu's speech serves to reinforce the folly of Job's three friends, the complete lack of wisdom that Job has already lamented in chapter 28. But There's a second perspective on this man, Elihu. A second group of Bible scholars tend to see Elihu in a far more sympathetic way, to see in his speeches a great deal of truth and wisdom that has been lacking in the earlier part of the book. You know, after studying the text in detail this week, I have to say I'm a bit sympathetic to both sides in the debate. I struggle to know what exactly to make of this young man named Elihu. On the one hand, I agree, Elihu comes off as an arrogant know-it-all. His speeches are wordy and insensitive. He himself says, I am full of words. Elihu often restates and reflects arguments and themes we've heard from the other men who are now standing on the sidelines. At the same time, I also think that Elihu has added something to the conversation, and that Elihu is putting his finger on a few important truths that we need to know. Truths about Job's sin and truths about God's greater purpose in suffering. There are a couple hints here, a couple clues in the text that lead me to believe that Elihu's words are to be taken seriously. Notice first of all, Elihu states right off the top he is not going to rehash the same worn out arguments of the other men. That's what he says in chapter 32, beginning in verse 11. He says, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise saying while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention. And behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware, lest you say we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me. I will not answer him with your speeches see, Elihu is claiming here that he has something unique to say to Job, and a close look at his speeches reveal him to be correct. Second hint suggesting that Elihu is to be taken seriously is the fact that Job did not attempt to refute him as he did with the other men. At the end of chapter 33, Elihu invites Job to speak up if he has anything to say, but Job remains strangely silent. A sign, perhaps, that something Elihu has said to him has struck a chord. The third reason I think we need to take Elihu's word seriously is because God does not speak out against him as he speaks against the other men later on in chapter 42. And these are all hints and clues, I believe, that Elihu has something important to say to Job and to us, that we should not simply dismiss this man and write him off as a useless windbag and lump him together with the other men. Well, with that introduction to this new character named Elihu, notice he enters the scene in chapter 32 with a great deal of anger, both towards Job and towards Job's three friends. Anger, as we all know, is, is a destructive emotion very often that leads quickly into sin. But there are also times when anger is justified and holy, and I believe that Job's, or that Elihu's anger here in these chapters is mostly a holy anger. We sometimes call righteous indignation. It's impossible to know how long Elihu has been standing off on the side, listening in on the debate between Job and his friends, but he has definitely been there long enough to become very impatient with both both parties. And Elihu, being a young man, has listened carefully and silently to all of the arguments that have been presented by the older men. He's respected the cultural conventions of his day, which associated wisdom and old age and gave preference to the elderly. I think it's fair to say some of us young men and women here in the Western world could learn something here in a culture that tends to idolize youth, to idolize novelty, to look down upon any time-tested convention and the wisdom of our elders. In any case, this young man, Elihu, listens patiently to the elders, and in this specific case, he concludes what we read in verse 9, that it is not the old who are wise nor the aged who understand what is right. Now there are a couple different reasons why Elihu is so hot and bothered by what he's seen and heard in this conversation. On one side, verse 2 informs us he's angry with Job because he justified himself rather than God. Elihu is a God-fearing man and some of the sinful remarks coming out of Job's mouth have offended him because he knows that those comments were also offensive to God. If you've ever been in a situation where somebody around you has been misusing the Lord's name or mocking the Lord Jesus or saying blasphemous things against God, perhaps you can relate a bit to Elihu. And that's why I suggest to you that the anger here is a righteous anger. It's an anger that is flaring up because God's honor and glory is being put down. Elihu believes that Job has slandered God that Job is speaking sinfully and he is not going to sit by silently while the name and the character of God is dragged through the mud. On the other side, it's clear that Elihu is angry with Job's with, with Job's three friends, their total inability to provide an answer to Job, to provide a, a wise perspective on his suffering. Elihu recognizes these men have been defeated by Job. Their arguments, quite simply, do not stand up to scrutiny. Over and over again, they've been accusing Job of sins he didn't commit. And Job has shown those accusations to be false. He's even issued this solemn oath challenging God to punish him, to strike him down if he's lying. In the course of this extended conversation, Job has also corrected the perspective with the observation, it is often the wicked who seem to prosper in this world and the innocent who seem to struggle and to suffer and to experience hardship." Job has been dealing with life as it really is. He's describing the world as it really is. A place that does not always reflect the justice and the righteousness of God. A place that is not always fair. These men keep ignoring the obvious and they insist over and over God's justice will never allow the innocent to suffer and the wicked to prosper in this life. They're ivory tower theologians. They're not in touch with the grim realities of injustice and human suffering in a world that is under the curse of sin. Well, while Job has been raising objections, he's been refuting their arguments point by point, these men can do nothing but repeat themselves endlessly until at last they have nothing more to say. And the only explanation they can come up with for suffering in this life is a punitive explanation that suffering is always and without explanation God's punishment for sin. Well, Elihu has been listening to all of this talk very patiently until finally he can take no more of it as he says in chapter 32, verse 19, behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Although it's true, Elihu does at points repeat arguments that sound very much like the things we've already heard. There is within these speeches an alternative perspective on suffering that has not yet been considered. The older men believe that suffering is always a sign of divine punishment. But Elihu suggests quite helpfully, I think, that suffering is God's way of opening our ears and getting our attention. He makes this point twice in the text, one in chapter 33, again in chapter 36, but the principle is stated most clearly and concisely in chapter 36, verse 15. Elihu says, God delivers the afflicted by their afflictions, and he opens their ear by adversity. That little phrase, opens their ear, is repeated about three times in the text, and that is a key phrase to understanding Elihu. Elihu is suggesting affliction and adversity is God's method of getting our attention. He's saying what C.S. Lewis said in a different way. Suffering is God's megaphone. And if we can wrap our minds around that one truth, it will do us a world of good the next time suffering comes knocking at our door. One of his excellent sermons on the book of Job, Pastor John Piper points out that not all pain is created equal. You know, there is a big difference between the pain of an executioner's whip and the pain of a surgeon's scalpel. One type of pain is punitive and destructive. The other type of pain is merciful and constructive. Not all pain is created equal. And as we saw in the opening illustration, there are times when pain and suffering can be very good. It can be a necessary thing, unpleasant as it might be in the moment we're experiencing it. You know, you and I ought to thank God for pain receptors that let us know when something is wrong because they tell us when we need to sit down and take a rest. Sometimes they tell us when we need to dial 911 and call the ambulance. Pain is a good and productive thing. That's the point Eli, who is making in the speech. This is Eli, whose main contribution to this discussion. Of course, suffering is never fun, whether it be physical or emotional. But if we understand that our suffering is somehow accomplishing something good and productive for the glory of God, it will help us to face any difficulty in life with hope and with confidence. We can know that God has not abandoned us in our suffering. We can know that God has not turned against us. God has not become our enemy. We do not need to assume that God is punishing us when we suffer or that He's angry with us. Rather, we can be confident as Christians, God is using every difficult circumstance for a good purpose that we may not fully understand in the moment. He is opening our ears. He is teaching us something. He is slowly refining us through adversity to make us more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reason why in the book of James we find these rather surprising words. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How's that for a verse for Advent? Count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Now, James is not saying here we need to become sadists who rejoice because of our suffering or that we should actively seek to suffer. Rather, James is saying we need to live as men and women who rejoice in the midst of suffering because we know and believe that God is sovereign over all things and that our present pain will somehow result in a positive outcome. If all that you can think of in your trial is that God is angry with you, that God is punishing you for some hidden sin, you will be crushed under the weight of adversity. But if you embrace the perspective of Elihu and believe that your sovereign and loving Father in heaven is using suffering to get your attention to accomplish something good for your sanctification and for His glory, it will totally change your perspective when you suffer. That's the contribution Elihu makes to the discussion about the problem of evil. He helps us get past the dead-end road of karma and to see suffering as instruction from a loving God. God way, God's way of getting our attention and opening our ears. You know, just like Job, we Christians are still imperfect people. We are in the process of being made to reflect the glory and the majesty of our Father in Heaven. Like Job, there is still residual sin hidden in our hearts that we don't always know is there. Like Job, there will always be until we receive our new bodies, spiritual pride and self-righteousness. It will rear its ugly head from time to time. Like Job, we too will struggle with the temptation to sin in our suffering, to blame God unjustly, perhaps to conclude wrongly that God is punishing us for something we've done. Let us be reminded today, brothers and sisters, through this passage in the Old Testament, there is only one human being who has ever suffered perfectly in this life, and his name is not Job. His name is Jesus Christ. And on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago, Jesus suffered the wrath of God against Job's sin. He suffered the wrath of God against the sin of every believer so that we who have been brought to saving faith in Him rejoice, enjoy peace with God. We enjoy a brand new relationship with the Father. As Christian men and women, we can know with confidence God is no longer our enemy and opponent. He is our Father. He is our friend. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, God extends His gracious invitation to you through His holy word, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Brothers and sisters, God is grieved with our sin. That is true. We need to take sin very seriously. But because Jesus, of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice at Calvary, God is no longer the enemy of the Christian. He is our loving Father in heaven. And if God is the perfect, loving Father who loves us with a perfect love, that means we can face pain and suffering with a totally different perspective. Perspective that we learned today from Elihu. The perspective we also find in the New Testament. For example, the book of Hebrews where we read these encouraging and comforting words. My son, do not, li- do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastens every son whom he receives. Job did not suffer because he had done something to make God angry. But in his suffering, Job did sin against God. And in his grace and mercy, God used that adversity to further refine and sanctify this man who he loved so much. And may God the Father accomplish that same sanctifying, refining work in each one of us. Amen.